Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Thanks for tuning into this bumper episode where we are celebrating the release of our latest guide, USA, where nomads go. We're going to let Ellen uh, Hall from World Nomads, who edited the guide, tell us all about it because a lot of work has gone into it. And what can readers expect? Well, it's not really your typical guide in that we don't we don't uh, we're not trying to cover the whole US. It's a, obviously a huge place. We're not going to, and so it's not set up like a typical guide where, you know, you have it all uh, broken out by regions and you have all the major cities and all the major parks and major attractions. Uh, we don't necessarily talk about all of that. There are lots of guides out there that, you know, somebody really wants to know about the Grand Canyon or New York. Um, certainly great guides out there, but we're really hoping to, um, we want to sort of give little windows into uh, America, the U.S., what it's like. And we are um, actually, so it's broken up by topic. We have um, art and culture, cities and towns, uh, nature and wildlife, adventure, few road trips. And we are trying to feature places that are a little bit more um, unexplored, a little less known, um, you know, places that maybe aren't so crowded, maybe are a little bit underrated or misunderstood. So that's that's what uh, readers will find. Thanks for that, Ellen. Super exciting. We'll share the guide in show notes, of course, but in this podcast episode, we'll focus just on a few of the stories. We'll hang out with orcas in Alaska, follow the barbecue trail with a vegetarian, no less, <laughs> ride the Creole trail and chat to the photographer behind the image on the cover of the guide. Yes, but let's get started with Greg Benchwick. He's a super cool guy. He wrote the Colorado skiing article. I think there were more than 30 contributors, journalists, travel writers that wow. contributed to this guide. And we ask about how skiing has changed since he was rocking his neon fanny pack on the slopes. <laughs> well, uh, you know, skiing has changed quite a bit. At, to start with, skiing has become a lot more popular and mainstream. Um, back when I was rocking my fanny pack, a lot less people were doing it. There was a lot less people on the slopes. Um, nowadays, it's become quite crowded and it continues, unfortunately, to be more of a rich person sport. So I'm going to cover some ways to save some bucks um, as we continue our conversation. The other thing that's really changed is people don't just ski anymore. It turns out that they attach both feet to this big, giant, ugly board. Oh, my yeah. word. <laughs> I, I've done, I, can I, disclaimer, I've done yeah. neither. I've, I've water skied a lot, but I have never been on a set of skis, nor have I been on a snowboard. And you may be not surprised to hear, Kim, but I go both ways. <laughs> I, I ski and board. <laughs> Obviously, Greg, by the sounds of uh, the direction you're heading, you, you ski, not board. Well, I am also board curious. Uh, <laughs> I've dabbled on both sides and I've even tele-turned back in the day. Well, I was interested in, in how, and I'm glad you touched on it, how this story um, made the US guide Where Nomads Go because I thought exactly what... Greg it's said, veil. Yeah, hang on, yeah. yeah, we've got Apre Ski Wear, we've got yeah. <laughs> ski resorts, this is expensive. So it was, really, uh, it was really refreshing to hear you say you're going to cover off some tips on how you can do this without spending heaps of bucks. Yeah, for sure. I mean, part of skiing has changed so much that I, I think just normal people need to know how to get on the slopes and how to have fun with it. 
One of the things that we have in Colorado that I love is a system of backcountry ski huts. Now, these are, it's a lot cheaper to go and it's a lot more dangerous, unfortunately, because Colorado has a dangerous snowpack, as does anywhere in the world because of avalanches. Um, But for next to nothing, you can go out into the wilderness and you can go skiing for free. Colorado also has a huge collection of, of resorts. Um, I think there are 28 resorts in all, and we have 300 days of sunshine. So we have resorts that range from Aspen and Snow and, and Vail, where tickets are hovering around 200 bucks uh, a day, um, to small mom and pop joints where you can still get a ticket, you can still get on the mountain for under 50 bucks. Something that happened for the first time this year is Colorado came up with a backcountry light type ski area where they uh, are taking people on guided, curated backcountry experiences um, where you go with a guide. The guide helps you stay safe in uh, dangerous avalanche terrain, avoid avalanche traps, uh, use all the safety gear, um, but you're getting that great backcountry experience. We also have an amazing resort called Silverton, way down south in southern Colorado that has one lift, that services um, thousands of acres of terrain. You go there, you ski with a guide in small groups. So it's like a backcountry light experience um, where you are, you have the safety of an avalanche patrolled area with the adventure of backcountry skiing. Now you've been on the mountain since you were two. You work on climate change and sustainable development with the United Nations. Have you noticed any changes or what changes have you noticed since um, you're a little little one up until a full-grown man? I'll, I'll tell you what, our world is in crisis. This is terrifying. Um, what is happening to our winters is terrifying. What is happening to skiing as a whole is terrifying. What happens, though, is people look at this year we had – an unprecedented amount of snow. We had a ton of snow in Colorado. We've been in drought for years and suddenly we're out of drought. We had a bunch of snow and people say, oh, climate change isn't real. This is manufactured. But the, the thing about there's a difference between climate and weather. Uh, climate, climate is a long-term thing, whereas weather happens on a short-term basis. So while Colorado did have a tremendous year, what we've seen as the overall trend is that winters are getting warmer Snow lines are going higher um, in elevation. So where we would be getting natural snow is leaving. And then this impacts everything. This just doesn't impact skiing, which is a billion-dollar industry in Colorado. This impacts our farmers who use snow that is saved over the winter as as their uh, water piggy bank. It it impacts uh, uh, businesses that rely on water um, and it impacts the entire economy of our, of our state and really the entire world. So for you then, why is there no better place and you've skied around the world than to take to the slopes of your home state, Colorado? Oh, well, I mean, Colorado is just the best. I got <laughs> I got to tell you guys, I, I, I've skied in Spain. I've skied in California. I've skied all over the world. And I always come back to Colorado because to start with, we have 300 days of sunshine a year. 
This means you're not skiing in a snowstorm with zero visibility. You're skiing with beautiful bluebird skies. Um, and we also have some of the driest snow uh, on the planet. Um, so that dry snow creates something we like to call champagne powder here in Colorado. Um, and that champagne powder is wonderful on a snowboard or skis uh, to just feel like you're flying. Um, and that to me is really the amazing part of Colorado. The other thing that we have is a real diversity of resorts. So we have these really cool mom and pop resorts like Monarch, Purgatory, Cooper that uh, cater to families, um, but they're all close to these old mining towns that are 100 years old. All the towns, or many of the towns, have um, preserved historic areas. We have killer, killer festivals. Um, so whether you like bluegrass music, you like arts and culture, there is going to be a, a, a festival uh, uh, happening somewhere in Colorado that meets your your specific needs. And we are also the Rocky Mountain High State, um, literally and figuratively. So, yes, the marijuana is now legal in Colorado. And <laughs> Rocky Mountain High. That's right. <laughs> How has the legalization of marijuana changed the state at all? You know, it really is sensible and it's responsible. I think um, for anybody that comes to Colorado anew, you need to remember, one, that you cannot take weed out of Colorado. Um, because it's illegal federally in the United States. Um, the, the other thing to remember is you need to go light and go easy. For one, you're at a high elevation in Colorado. Generally speaking, in a skier, you're going to be above 8,000 feet, and you're going to be going up to 12,000 feet. That's uh, three, 4,000 meters. Um, so take it easy, go light, and then every town kind of has its own relationship uh, with cannabis. So in Breckenridge, for instance, Breckenridge is a wonderful town, has a great historic feel, great for families. There are no marijuana shops on Main Street. You go to Aspen and there are a dozen dispensaries right, right in the middle of town. It's just every town has taken its own stance on it. Um, it is still illegal to smoke marijuana out outside of your home, I believe. Um, though I do think there's uh, some stuff happening in the uh, in the old gondola. I love Colorado. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we've got ski tips and uh, marijuana tips from you, Greg, more than we bargained for. We did say that this conversation could venture far and wide, far didn't we? Far and wide. There you go. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bluebird Colorado is your article in the USI Guide, where, USA Guide, where nomads go. Phil, Greg mentioned marijuana um, from an insurance perspective. If you're high on the skis, are you covered? Uh, look, we don't cover illegal activity. But that's legal. It, well, it's legal there. But as you said, don't take it out of the state. Don't smoke out of your own home and what have you. So, But if it's a legal activity, then I, we sort of more or less treat it the same way that we do alcohol. Yep. So if something happens to you that is 
directly relatable to the fact that you were intoxicated, either by alcohol or by uh, marijuana, then that may impact whether your claim is paid or not. The difficulty comes in that, you know, it's pretty easy to work out what your blood alcohol content level was. And if you're over 0.05 or 0.08, then that's considered to be intoxicated. It's very hard to do that with marijuana. And you also don't know... I mean, you know, a shot of whiskey is a shot of whiskey and you know exactly how much alcohol you, you're taking in. But when you when you smoke weed, you don't know what you're taking in. You don't know how strong the weed is. You don't know how much you've yeah. inhaled or ingested or whatever. In Canada, where it is federally legal to use and possess uh, marijuana, the Canadian government there has said, if you smoke, don't drive at all. Hit it, maestro. Yeah, here at World Nomads, the information we provide about travel insurance, it is brief, I can't deny. Doesn't take into account your personal needs and doesn't include all terms or conditions. You see or limitations, exclusions, and termination provisions of the travel insurance plan described. Now listen, coverage may not be available for residents of all countries, states, or provinces. Carefully read the policy available at worldnomads.com. For full description of coverage, it's time to check it out. Let's go. Hey, yo. Yeah. Read the policy documents. Yes, do do that. Now, still to come in this episode, hanging out with orcas, but let's check in with El Hardy, a vegetarian who tackled the US barbecue trail. I've been reading a lot recently about plant-based diets and the benefits for the environment and for the humans as well. But I love meat, so... L, as a vegetarian, how did you sign up for this? <laughs> um, no, well, I'm I'm Australian and I moved to New Orleans a couple of years ago and I uh, found it was really, really difficult to, to eat down here as a vegetarian. Um, and so I was doing a lot of traveling around the South, uh, lived in my car, lived in a van for a year and was always getting around. And, um, I just found barbecue culture quite interesting. So after a while I thought that I should probably, um, try and give it a go. So before you moved to the U S what was your relationship with meat? Uh, well, I've been a vegetarian my whole life. Um, so my mum said, so is my sister actually, even though our parents aren't. So my mum said that when um, she was pregnant with us both, she just couldn't stand, the smell of meat would just make her sick. And um, and ever since we were little babies, we just wouldn't eat meat. And um, so we just kind of grew up that way. So it's something I've never really tried. Um, and that was kind of part of the challenge, I suppose, that I set myself with, um, with heading along the barbecue trail was, um, was just sort of trying to see what it, what the sort of reasons were that I might not have been eating meat and whether I actually liked it. Okay. I want to know what, we'll get to your first taste of meat in a moment, but tell me about the barbecue trail. Where, where, where were you going? Sure. Um, so there are five main barbecue centers in the US. So there is uh, Texas, of course. Um, there's Kansas City in Missouri. Um, there is Memphis in Tennessee. There's Alabama and there's the Carolinas. So the, the coast, mostly the, the coastal and the inland regions of, of North and South Carolina. A barbecue, it's, you know, it's, it's almost a religion, it is. It, it really is. Um, and it's a, 
yeah, it's a, it's a real part of the culture. Um, and I was actually sort of lucky that early on someone told me that um, it's kind of an entry point, the way that um, that you judge a, a barbecue or any kind of soul food place in the South is by their greens. Uh, because if they can't do the greens well, you can't trust them to, to do the big stuff right. <laughs> so do the dishes vary between those states? Yeah, they, they very much do. Um, so in the Carolinas, uh, Memphis and Kansas, um, it's hog. Um, some places might do some other things, but, but pig really is it. Um, Alabama does a bit of everything, but they, they really specialize in chicken and Texas is all about, um, is all about cow. There's a whole world of, uh, of secret rubs and, and there's one barbecue uh, store owner in, in Memphis, one of the oldest ones in town. He sort of told me he doesn't really judge barbecue so much by city because it's just, it can completely vary restaurant to restaurant. It's all about the way that they prepare it. Their certain blend. Um, his family is Greek, so they use a lot of Greek herbs in theirs, which is which is quite different to a lot of other places. <laughs> okay, so let's let's get to the nitty gritty. Where were you when you first had your first barbecue, your first taste of meat, and describe the experience for us? Sure. Um, well, it was, uh, it was in the Carolinas at, uh, Rodney Scott, who's quite a famous, uh, barbecue ma- uh, pit master, they call them. He featured in, um, Anthony Bourdain's, uh, South Carolina episode, I think it was. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he's quite famous. He's open. He sort of had this rural, um, shop, you know, sort of on a highway roadside and, um, and it was sort of people just came from all over to go to it and it's become really popular now. So he's opened up, uh, one in Charleston in the capital of South Carolina and he's also opening up one in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, so yeah, so that was my first taste. Um, and it's, you know, I write words for a living and it's so difficult to describe what eating meat feels and, and tastes like for the first time. It's, um, it's, it's quite a bizarre experience. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, it was kind of yum. <laughs> I think that the texture was more than two for me, um, but but I really enjoyed the taste. I and mean, when you spend enough time in the south and around barbecue joints, that that beautiful smoky smell, you you can get to quite like it. And and I I really did. So it was it was sort of an extension of that, I guess. How did you feel ethically about tucking into a bit of hog? Um, yeah, look, I, I did struggle a bit. Um, I, I did also talk to quite a lot of people, especially before I kind of, um, embarked on it, um, about, you know, sort of barbecue culture and, um, and there is, you know, a fairly, um, there's a lot of sort of top to tail stuff going on, which is really the way that if we're going to be eating meat, we should be eating meat, which is, you know, using as much of the animal as possible, raising it as locally as possible. Um, so, I mean, it all depends again, you know, restaurant to restaurant, but there's certainly, um, there's certainly a real movement within barbecue. I think that's getting to a more sustainable, um, kind of form of, um, of eating meat. So is it hard then if you are a Launch vegetarian or vegan to live in in New Orleans. <laughs> um, yeah, New Orleans is definitely a, um, a, one of the, the more extreme areas because um, it's. I mean, they do have a bit of barbecue here, but Cajun food is you know just so seafood heavy. Um, so it's probably not the kind of place you'd come. But um, I mean, one of the other great delights with barbecue culture is that they're really into their sides. 
Um, so there's always, you know, there's always all sorts of combinations of mac and cheese and okra and things like that that you can get that aren't, aren't always meat. But, but obviously, you know, the main show is, uh, is the hog or, or the steer or whatever the, the meat is um, where you happen to be. Well, you mentioned it when we first um, started chatting that you lived in a van for a year. Was this when you did the Great Lakes Loop? Yes, it was. Now, that is, that is a road trip that really interests me after reading your story. Just tell us about it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's such an amazing part of America and um, it's kind of not one of the parts of America you hear so much about. Um, and, and I was almost a bit ashamed that I didn't realise that there were all these fantastic beaches, you know, in the Chicago Central Business District and, um, you know, and, and the, you know, the, the northern coast of, um, of Wisconsin. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, so there's the, the five Great Lakes that they hold about 18% of the world's um, natural fresh water. Um, and it's up in that area sort of along the US-Canada border. Uh, so, yeah, my partner and I uh, jumped in our, in our van and uh, set out to do a loop from uh, Chicago to Chicago. So what were some of the best spots you found? Sure. Um, well, I mean, obviously there's Chicago. Uh, it's such a fantastic city. You can't spend enough time there or, or speak about it highly enough. Um, but I guess some of, some of the lesser known uh, things. So, so after there, we kind of did a, did a quick jaunt out to uh, Niagara Falls, which is, um, I mean, it's stunning, but it's kind of crazy, very touristy. Um, strangely, the Canadian side's actually a lot more touristy than the, than the New York side. And, and then when we travelled up into uh, Michigan, so we went up through Ann Arbor, which is a sort of gorgeous little university town that um, just seems to have a bookstore every two steps and, and all this really fantastic um, dining. Um, and then we went up to Sleeping Bear Dunes, which is probably one of my absolute favourite parts of America. It's on the west coast of Michigan um, and it has it's a massive sort of uh, rolling hills of sand dunes um, that are just, uh, you'll never know just quite how unfit you are until you try and climb one of the smaller ones. Um, but it's just fantastic. You know, there's um, eagles flying overhead and there's, uh, you know, cherry trees everywhere, beaches and, and just, um, you know, just sheer, sheer drops of sand hills down in, into the lake. I'm just looking at a map here right now. So when you go up through from Chicago up through Michigan, then you there must be. It looks like there's an enormous bridge that gets you over on onto the other side, and that's how you continue your trip. Yes, it is, um, and that's yeah, a, uh, the Mackinac Bridge. It is. That's it. Yeah, I think or Mackinac. I think. It's yeah, actually. Mackinac. Yeah. yeah, I think it's something like 26 miles across and sort of one of the longest, I think it was for a long time, the longest suspension bridge in the world or something like that. But I think it's been overtaken by something in China now. Um, and then that takes you into the upper peninsula of Michigan. And then from there, we went over to uh, Marquette, which is, um, which is again, just a fantastic um, sort of a seaside kind of holiday town, I guess, on, um, on Lake Superior. A lot of really cute little gastropubs, just a really nice, happy, laid-back culture, yeah. You said Chicago to Chicago. So then did you go north and through on the Canadian side of the lakes or did you just 
loop back around? No. We, so we, yeah, we, we just looped back around. So we went up a peninsula of Michigan and then into Wisconsin and, um, and then down to Green Bay, which is, um, yeah, uh, sorry, not to Green Bay, to Door County, which is just off Green Bay in uh, Wisconsin. And that's, again, just sort of a real, um, it's kind of the, the, the summer holiday kind of destination for people around those states. And it's just, you know, fantastic kind of, uh, blue-green waters, um, white sands, fantastic uh, food, you know, food culture. Wisconsin's really famous for cheese, so there's uh, fromageries everywhere and uh, lots of wineries and uh, lots of craft beer. Pretty hard to go wrong for, for a summer holiday break. Thank you so much for that, Elle. Now to Libby Baldwin. She grew up in Florida and was in love with whales from the moment she saw them as a kid in Canada. Now, once she realised you could actually make a living out of hanging with whales, that was it. And she's currently in her fourth season in Juneau, Alaska, and is one of a handful of women captaining whale boats there. And Phil, surprisingly, she says a lot of people are not aware Alaska is part of the United States. Who? Libby? Yes. uh, Believe it or not, we do get a lot of visitors who who are always like, oh, do I need a passport? Am I going to need a, like, are we going to get close enough to Canada where I don't have to worry about my cell phone? Or is it easy to get here every year? All these questions that it's like, wow, have you guys looked at a map recently? I mean, <laughs> it is part of the United States, but it seems like a different world in a lot of ways. You started off as a deckhand and then became one of only a handful of women captaining um, whale boats. So how did that start? Well, it started like any other job, I suppose. My first couple of years, I started coming to the Pacific Northwest for like a few days after I graduated from college. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> I met a, a captain in Washington State who became kind of a mentor for me and he's still a really good friend and I basically begged him to take me out and teach me how to work on whaleboats. So he agreed and he was like, well, go get a job and then you can come out with me on your days off. And so that's what I did. I got a job working in the hotel front desk at a, um, at a resort um, in the place that I was at. And I went out with him on my days off and I basically scrubbed boats and did a lot of really grunt work in exchange for free lessons on how to become a deckhand. Um, And I did that for two summers. And my third summer, I got a real job and started getting paid for it to be a naturalist and a deckhand on a whale watching boat. Uh, And then I did several more summers after that. Then I came to, yeah, uh, gosh, that was 2013 when I got that first paying job. And then I was there for a few more summers. And then I came to Juno in 2016 as a deckhand and as a naturalist. And uh, finally, <laughs> in um, 2018, last April, I, I sat for my captain's license and, and got it. So Ooh. now I'm a captain. Oh, you. As well. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, obviously, I know what you mean by naturalist, but just explain it. You kind of mention it goes hand in hand with your work. It's funny because a lot of people are like, naturalist, does that mean you don't wear clothes while you work? And I'm like, (laughs) oh, that's naturist. There's a little bit of a difference there. Um, Basically, a naturalist is someone who knows a lot about a certain animal or about a certain ecosystem or anything in nature, really, that they're just obsessed with and they know a lot about it and they're able to present the information to people who go on a tour or just want to know more about it in like a tour guide kind of way. It's basically a tour guide specializing in a certain 
part of nature. Okay, and you are specialising obviously in whales. Um, what what's the season yeah. like? Are you guaranteed to to see a whale? Um, yeah, we all the tours out here say you're guaranteed to see whales just because it started to be a thing several years ago where people were like, oh, we don't want to go on this tour unless we're for sure going to see something. And there's, you know, there's this disconnect where some people don't really understand that whales are wild animals and we, it's not like a zoo or an aquarium. We can't control where they're going to be. We can't control what they're going to do or how many we're going to see or anything like that. But so guaranteed whales, if you see a tour that guarantees whales, that basically means we're going to see whales, you know, 99.9% of the time. But if we don't see whales, you'll get your money back. But um, speaking for Juno, in the four years I've been out here, I've never once gone out and not seen at least one whale on every tour. And what's that feeling mm-hmm. like? I mean, do you ever lose uh, the excitement for seeing a whale? Pretty much no. I mean, you know, it's 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 a job like any other job. You have your really good days and you have your bad days. And sometimes when it's pouring down rain and you only have one whale that you see the whole day and you're sitting here looking at the same whale going, I just don't care anymore. You know, we're watching the same whale for an hour or two hours and then going back out and doing it again. But so many times I'm lucky enough to see this experience through the eyes of my guests, through the eyes of my passengers, because to me, it may be the same one whale that I've been looking at for a week, but to them, they've never seen a whale in the wild and they, they may never again. So it's, it's easy to get caught up in their excitement. And, you know, so I get constantly reminded that I'm very, very blessed to have a job where, you know, I get to hang out with the most magnificent animal in the world every day. And I get to watch people experience that for the first time the way I did. And it's a really magical experience. So most of the time, no, it doesn't get old. What, what sort of whales are you talking about? Well, primarily in Juneau, here we see humpback whales. We also see orca whales, killer whales, once or once every week or two weeks. And uh, those are my favorite. Those are the, the whales that I love. I've been completely obsessed with orcas my entire life. All whales, but orcas in particular. Um, so being able to share that passion with people is is unbelievable. Like hotbacks are amazing. Obviously, they're they're magnificent creatures. They're huge. They're graceful and beautiful. We have a couple of moms with babies this year, and that's just really precious to watch. But there's something about the orcas. It's it's like it's not something we see every day. So when we do see them, all of us are genuinely excited. Me especially, and then I get to tell my guests about the orcas while we watch them. And you just, you just, a lot of people get the sense of just how powerful this animal is. It's the top predator in the ocean. And I believe it has this really spiritual power, huge, beautiful creature who is in equal parts, a streamlined killing machine, you know, an apex predator, and then like a dedicated family member. They're the same thing in one animal. They're a paradox in and of themselves. And I think people sense that and they see the beauty and the grace of these animals. And so to watch people see wild orcas for the first time, it's, there's something so special and so it achieves such a high about it. It's such an adrenaline rush. And then they hang on to your every word while you're standing there talking about your favorite animal, which is something you do every day anyway. Like my friends all love me. They all understand 
how much I love orcas, but when I start talking about orcas, you know, they get bored after a while because they're like, well, that's cool, but we don't really care. <laughs> but these people that have come, these people that have come all this way to see an orca, they want to hear everything I have to say. And it's just something truly magical about standing up in front of a group of people and knowing that they want to hear you talk about your passion. Look out for Libby's story behind the wheel of an Alaskan whale-watching boat in USA where nomads go. Phil, your travel news. Okay. Have you ever seen the pictures of the tree-climbing goats in Morocco just outside of oh, Marrakesh? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that the original of that, that popped up. Nobody's exactly sure how it started or who it started. But now you can find these goats in trees in other places around Morocco as well. Well, it's just been <laughs> uncovered that it's a scam. They don't really... Farmers put them in the trees because then when people come to take the photographs, they get a little tip from them. And other farmers have cottoned onto it as well. But there's this whole sort of, you know, um, a very authentic tale about, you know, the tree climbing goats of Morocco. No, it's all goat it's all, it's all goat dust. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently some of the farmers are using ropes to haul them up there and then, and then take them down at night. And they're not made to stand in those trees there. So they get very tired. So they take them out and put a different set of goats in every now and then. That's look, like a comedy look, show. Like we're, you know, world nomads, we're not into animal exploitation. So elephant riding is definitely off. Those tiger temples are definitely off. Can I now put the Moroccan tree climbing goats onto that Yeah, list, put please? it on the list. That's yeah. insane. That yeah. really is insane. What Speaking else? of insane things, there's uh, plans to build a new international airport close to Machu Picchu in Peru. In the Sacred Valley. Now, I've been there. I was there with three, four years ago. I was there. There is an international airport in Cusco, and then you have to, you know, travel for an hour or two to get into the Sacred Valley and through the Sacred Valley and up to Machu Picchu. Which is part of the thrill. Part of the thrill. You've got to go in. It's part of the Inca Trail. You've got to... But they're talking about in uh, Chinchero, one of the villages, one of the towns right on the one end of um, the Sacred Valley, they're talking about they've actually started clearing land already. No. They're pulled up, yeah. So there's a big international movement there, lots of people signing petitions getting to stop it, and I fully agree with that. I, You know, like... That's crazy. It is crazy. Two pieces of crazy travel news. Well, Joel is a travel writer and his partner, Steph, is a photographer. I, I usually thank you for your travel news, so I do apologise. No, no, thank no, you. No, thank no, you. No problem. <laughs> um, yeah, Steph's the photographer. In fact, Steph is responsible for the pic on the front of the guide. Now, Creole cowboy culture in Louisiana and East Texas is what we're going to be chatting to them about. But firstly, Steph, congrats on scoring that front cover. Thank you. <laughs> Were you aware? Obviously, sounds like you were. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, I've been uh, chatting with an editor about it. Um, so it was kind of something unexpected, but I re- originally commissioned the story. So it was kind of exciting to hear about that. Yeah, it is a great photo, which you'll see when you have a look at a guy at the guide. And you took a, f- a further set of photos to accompany the story on Creole cowboy culture. And you really captured some beautiful shots. Thank you. It was really, um, it was a fun thing to shoot and um, we were just running around um, as I was photographing it and jumping on wagons. It was, it was a good time. Yeah. Okay. Creole cowboys. Now, when you think about it now, I mean, it's pretty obvious that they would have been African-American cowboys, but of course we never saw them in the movies. Um, It's just not depicted. Well, Joel, why is it part of the history that we don't really uh, or isn't really spoken about? 
There have been a few movies that displayed uh, black cowboys. There was uh, uh, Blazing Saddles, a comedy, and uh, Django Unchained. But um, yeah, most of the time we think of John Wayne. We think of um, yeah, very white dudes with cowboys chasing uh, as cowboys chasing Indians. But uh, when we were down south in the U.S., we were driving across um, in an RV uh, from Toronto, Canada, all the way to San Diego. And we were in uh, Louisiana or Texas, and we just heard about uh, we heard about these Creole trail rides, and they're a huge thing. They happen almost every weekend, most of the year. Uh, definitely in Louisiana, the most. But uh, we we managed to catch one in East Texas, and it's a huge celebration that you know is a rich part of American culture that we had no idea about. Sounds good too. Cold beers and grilled meats, so it's a real festival. Oh yeah, uh, we went on a Saturday and and just people started rolling in, rolling in, and they had huge like uh, pots of of gumbo stew and and then when they got on the um, they got on the horses and there's just like blasting music from wagons, everyone's dancing, drinking beers on horseback. It was it was a lot of fun. So why do you think this Creole uh, cowboy culture is thriving today? I'm not sure. I think that um, they. For years ago, they'd been kind of kicked out of of, of white cowboy culture, um, also in rodeos, not just the trail rides. And here they found a way to be with their community and to be uh, together. And they've been doing it for, uh, you know, no one knows how long, but it just kind of keeps going. And then they've also attracted people from the cities now. Uh, so people in, in Houston, we met people um, in the big city in Texas, Houston and uh, Dallas, and they'd come all, they'd come all to this small town, um, you know, to either ride the horses or to listen to music after, or just to have a lot of fun. And they said it's a really safe place to have fun rather than, um, you know, sometimes going out to the club, maybe in the big city can be a little bit dangerous, but here they feel, they feel really safe. Yeah. Cause that's the thing. It's not just the trail ride. It's the party in the evening. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the whole families come out. Everyone's out there. Um, you don't have to have a horse. There's people also on motorcycles. And um, that that was just one particular trail ride that we saw, though. There's I talked to people from uh, the biggest trail ride uh, in Louisiana, and that that's a whole different experience. And that goes over several days. Another story that you've written for the for the guide, and it is a bumper guide, um, is the road trip that you took to New Mexico. Now, I'm assuming this was together. Yeah, this is all part. This is you know kind of right after uh, right after this Texas experience. Actually, the RV broke down uh, for the second time. The engine broke down, uh, so we were stranded in Texas for a few weeks. But right after that, we made it out. As you can see in the story, uh, it was extremely hot. It was in July, or uh, yeah, it was in July, and we we made it to New Mexico, and uh, we were really surprised. It's really a great state. In what way? What was what was surprising about it? Um, it? It really has an interesting mixture of cultures. There's the Pueblo people, uh, who you know, there's different um, communities all around the state, and they've been living there for thousands of years. They, you know, they've always been there. And then there's, you know, they also have a little bit of uh, influence from you know Mexican culture, um, and there's a really interesting art scene, art community, and. Uh, you know, they have good food and, and 
yeah, it's just, it's really like kind of, um, and the landscape is beautiful. We went to Carlsbad Caverns, which is this massive underground cave, which, you know, as big as, like as big as the city, it just keeps going, keeps going. It's really beautiful. You've got big reps for Santa Fe in the article. You had a great time there. Yeah, there's this thing in Santa Fe called Meow Wolf, which is, um, it's, it's really hard to describe. It's one of those things you have to go, but it, it's, it's part museum, part fun house. You kind of have to solve a mystery and then you end up, you know, crawling through a, you know, the, uh, the washing machine or the dryer and then you get into a whole new world and you can kind of play around and there's neon lights it's, it sounds really crazy but it is crazy and they're actually they're expanding to different cities all over the u.s but this was the very first one started by a collective of artists sounds like you just survived that road trip when you kind of scan through your story you speak of the july hellfire all that you were <laughs> after was cool air the heat was overpowering how hot are we talking joel I mean, we didn't have air conditioning in the RV and it was definitely um, over 40, 43 degrees or yeah, about, it was over 40 degrees at least. Yeah. And if you're to look into the, uh, the, the, uh, the world nomads archive, we also did a story in Mississippi about when the RV broke down, uh, and we were stranded in the Mississippi Delta for five days. So yeah, it was, it was, a, <laughs> it was a journey, but it was, a, it was, a, we got to see some amazing things along the way. We've got an episode coming up on van life, which I'm sure you'll uh, enjoy tuning into. What was the name of your RV? Um, it's Stevie Lee, which is pretty similar to my name, which is definitely, I just like the name Stevie better. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, what did you take out of that uh, New Mexico road trip? I guess, yeah. yeah, we were in Texas and my car, the RV had broken down um, and it was insanely hot. And I think we were kind of miserable and we're like, isn't this supposed to be fun? <laughs> you know, the RV is broken. I was stressed about that. It was super hot. And then we just like got, as soon as we crossed into New Mexico, it was just like, like something washed over us and we were so relieved to be there. And then like, we had an amazing time there. Yeah. We, the first thing we did, we went to the, the, these caves and we were hiking through them for like hours it was incredible and we were just so impressed and after having such like a a difficult time in texas that it was just like really special to us you certainly sound like you've experienced part of america that and i guess this was the point of the guide too, telling americans about what you can explore in your own backyard yeah, I think so. It's a, it's a huge country and you often hear, you hear about California, you know, you hear about certain main spots, but we, we tried to hit, do something a little bit different going through the, the Delta and going through New Mexico and then going through, uh, um, you know, Louisiana Cajun country. These are places that, you know, are, are really rich with culture, but most Americans don't visit. We, we went there for four months through the U.S., so we had a lot of time, and we weren't just kind of catching highlights. We were trying to, you know, catch the things between the highlights that ended up oftentimes, you know, being the most standout parts. Well, you're coming into summer. Joel, I hope you stay cool. <laughs> um, we'll share the stories and uh, the photos that you took for the guide in our show notes. Guys, thanks for chatting to us. Thank you. Thank you. We do plan to go back to the to the RV this summer, so uh, hopefully it's not too too. head for the cool forest you'll be fine well that wraps up this episode on the usa where nomads go we have released this episode to celebrate the guide but you may be interested in an earlier episode where we focused on the states you know music fans they've probably heard of nashville and memphis but clarksdale mississippi is somewhere that's really important for blues music it's it's where you go to these hole in the wall blues clubs you know it's where all this music history has come from and it's somewhere that 
you really have to go out of your way to visit. It is a bit of a drive from Memphis and definitely requires a car, but it's very well worth the trip. You can find the latest episode of the World Nomad podcast through all those popular podcast apps and players, but the easiest way is just to go to worldnomads.com forward slash podcasts. And if you know someone who loves travelling as much as you do, please tell them about us. We'd appreciate any likes and shares and social love that you want to give us. Now, next week, a really exciting episode. In fact, we're hitting the road and chatting too. I'm so excited about this. The co-founder of Lonely Planet, Tony Wheeler. Bye. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.